All right, I think my audio is going. I'm just gonna go for it. So this bonus episode of Tiny Matters is very different from the actual episodes of Tiny Matters. This is just a getting to know you episode <laughs> featuring Taboki <laughs> and I asking each other questions. Um, reasoning behind doing this, uh, you know, I felt like starting a new podcast and not really introducing who we were might be, I don't know if off-putting is the right term, but like people might want to kind of know who we are and uh, why they should listen to us talk about science. So at the very least, I want to know who you are. I yes. feel like yes. <laughs> we can at least get to know each other doing yes. this. Yes, we, yes. So this is an opportunity for Deboki and I to get to know each other better and for all of you to get to know us. So this is going to be very informal. Um, this is not scripted as our full episodes are. So this will be kind of fun and weird and not something that I ever do. <laughs> so that is why that is why I'm so awkward about it. Okay. <laughs> Devoki, do you want to kick things off? Just kind of talk about your very general path to what you're doing now? Yeah. How how did I end up here on this yes. microphone with you? Yes. Um, so my background is in bioengineering. I went to Caltech for undergrad, did bioengineering and English there as my majors, um, which was a lot of fun. It was a good combination to make sure yeah. that I was still reading books. Um, <laughs> then after that, I went to grad school. I went to Boston University, did my PhD in biomedical engineering there, and sort of like halfway through, well, I sort of went into grad school knowing that I might not want to do research and want to do like science writing instead, but I didn't like fully commit to it until like about halfway through my PhD. And so from there, I was like not quite sure what I was going to do. So for some reason, the idea, the thing that stuck with me was I'm going to start my own YouTube channel. And you would think like, hey, if you want to go into science writing, you would start a YouTube channel about science. Instead, I was like, no, I'm going to do it about books. I'm just going to sit here and talk about books and then talk a little bit about doing my PhD. Um, so not necessarily the most direct path into science writing, but it did get me to like learn how to make videos. And that helped me get an internship after I graduated at Scientific American. And then after that kind of like helped me go into this whole SciComm world, like kind of focusing mostly on video and podcast, which has been a lot of fun. It was, yeah, like I said, not the straightest path, not the most direct path there, but it worked out. Yeah, I feel that. There's definitely some overlap with our experiences. So I grew up in the Boston area, and I ended up going to Vassar College in New York for my undergrad, and I majored in biology, um, but also secondary science education. And I actually cool. got my teaching certificate to teach secondary science ed in New York State. Um, but I was kind of just like playing with the idea of research. And I felt like I wanted to kind of push myself to, I don't know, try out research on a level beyond undergrad. And so I ended up actually working the summer after I finished my undergrad um, in Woods Hole at the Marine Biological Laboratory. And I was a course assistant for an embryology course. And I got to just kind of play around with a bunch of different 
like model organisms. So you have, I mean, you have things like planaria, and then you also have all these different types of snails and frogs. And it was just really, really cool. And so I ended up actually working as a research technician for a little over a year um, in Kansas City um, at the Stowers Institute for Medical Research, worked in a stem cell research lab, liked it enough to continue on to a PhD. But like you, Deboki, I did not go in thinking I need to stay in academia after this. Um, I was never dead set on truly anything, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I, I knew that it was not for me. Staying in academia was not like the be all end all of you know what I wanted to do with my life. And a couple years in, I started realizing that I definitely did not want to stay in academia, but I also probably didn't want to go into biotech. And I liked lab work okay, but it was not something that I wanted to just continue to do for years and years and years. So I started just like going to every career fair that I could find. (laughs) And I went to one on medical writing and I left it thinking, okay, I don't want to be a medical writer, but I'm really curious about this writing thing. And it's funny because I think like, with all the teaching stuff that I did as an undergrad and just out of undergrad, I it made sense to me that I liked explaining science to people, but I kind of never put two and two together until then. And I took a science writing course through UC San Diego where I was doing my PhD. And uh, I just like absolutely fell in love because I think a lot of times people think of science writing or science communication as like one thing. But in this mm-hmm. course, it was, you know, I my mind was completely blown, I guess, when it was like, no, you could write (laughs) press releases, you could write for journalistic outlets, you could write features, you could produce videos, you could make podcasts. So this was like, uh, yeah, I was blown away by how intrigued I was, yet I had no idea what I was going to do. So then I finished my PhD. um, And then I ended up actually, you know, my last few years of, or last couple years of my PhD, especially, I ended up getting a, a very small internship um, where I was working with a public information officer uh, who, you know, people who write press releases for universities and institutions. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of like learned how to do the sort of like newsy science writing. Um, and I like convinced other institutes around the area to let me just write for them. Like they didn't have to pay me, just let me write for them so that I could like gather up those clips and then apply for positions. And so I did. And then I started, um, I, as soon as I graduated or, you know, defended my PhD, um, I got a job as an assistant editor for chemical and engineering news um, at uh, the American Chemical Society. And then from there, very quickly after got into science video and podcasting, and now I, you know, (laughs) am primarily podcasting, but also doing some freelance writing for different journalistic outlets. Um, So yeah, I guess I'm still figuring it out. But that was my very kind of winding weird path to realizing that I could combine science and writing. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. No, it was funny too, when you were saying um, how like going to like learning about science writing and realizing like how broad it is. Because one of the things that I remember when I started saying, like, I think I want to do science writing, it felt like such a funny litmus test of like whoever I told it to, what they thought of immediately when I said that. Because a lot of people were like, oh, so you want to be a journal editor? And I was like, 
no, that's not the one. Like, that's not right. the thing I'm thinking of. But it is like, that is like a very big part of science writing. And like, that is like a pretty integral role. And so like, I've had other friends who have gone down that path. And I was like, right, this is like, we're we're all like, like science writing and science communication is such a vast thing because it's, there's such a big ecosystem around how to get science communicated between different scientists, between different institutions, and also between the science, like where it's happening, and then the public at large. Like, it's such a big ecosystem, and there's so much to find yeah. out in there. Yeah, no, absolutely. I actually, this made me think of my favorite thing, my favorite response uh, to me saying I'm a science writer was someone, so someone said to me, um, What do you do? And I said, Oh, I'm a science writer. And they said, fiction or nonfiction? <laughs> and I was like, I, I wish I was a writer of science fiction, but no, yeah. unfortunately, nonfiction. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. That's so great. you just, yeah, I thought that was, I, I loved that. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that's the thing. I, uh, science writing, science communication, you know, there are just so many formats. And I think, um, you know, I, I think part of my part of the appeal to me of podcasting is that I feel like I can reach a lot of people with very diverse interests. And maybe I'm reaching people who wouldn't normally want to click on a, an article and read it, um, but they mm -hmm. would, while they're folding laundry, pop their earbuds in and listen to an episode of Tiny Matters. So, yeah. <laughs> yep. Totally. Like, I, I still definitely remember, like, listening to so many podcasts when I was in grad school. Like, all the time. It was like I, if I was running an experiment, if I was setting stuff up, like I always had a podcast on. Yeah. And I like part of the fun of it is like that feeling, you know, that a lot of people talk about of like being in on a conversation, of like getting to feel like you're in a room with people who are talking about the thing. And it's it was one of those things where I was like, oh, this is cool. Like that would be so cool to get to do. And yeah. now it's like we get to do it. I know. I know. It's very fun. I, yeah, I feel like I became quote, friends with so many podcasters while I was just like hanging out, waiting for my cells to just incubate <laughs> or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So I think that gives people like a pretty solid idea of how we got here or at least <laughs> yeah. general idea. So now Deboki and I have come up with a handful of questions each yeah. that we are going to ask each other. Do you want to kick things off or do you want me to kick things off? Um, I can kick things off since I started with my intro. Okay. Uh, so one of the things that I'm curious about is, uh, you know, like you've done this switch from a lot of different things. You did the science, the education, and also working on the PIO side, like working on that public information side. And now moving over to the more kind of like direct, I guess, engagement side. I don't know if that's the right way to phrase it. But yeah, yeah. like the the working on the, um, the podcast side. Uh, so I guess one of the things I'm really curious about is like along those different steps, we're did working in any of those different things and moving along those different parts of the the path, did that change the way that you see science itself? I think it's made me appreciate the scientists who are really transparent about their work and are mm. really open about what's succeeding, what's not succeeding, what still needs to happen with the field. Um, yeah. So I think that like a lot of times when you are in the science, you're in the research, you're like, really in this niche thing and you're surrounding yourself with other people who are super amped about that same niche thing that I think sometimes you sort of like lose your perspective. It's easy to get kind of wrapped up in that when you're in the research because everything's so exciting. But I think that like I've been able to 
as a science communicator, take a step back and look at the relevance of certain findings within a certain context and for you know, certain people and also kind of evaluate things like, okay, have you only shown this in cells in addition yet? It's somehow being extrapolated to the public as this is going to cure X, Y, and Z in humans. You know, I've become more aware of this overhype of science and I've gained a greater uh, respect for researchers who really tell you where the holes are in their research and you know, tell you what the exciting findings are, but, you know, there are always caveats. There are almost always caveats, and they're upfront about that. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And it's interesting because I feel like uh, one of the things that happened for me when I was, like, making the switch over is, you know, like, there's the way that I think when you're in the science world, when you're doing the research, the way that you process the media that's about science, and there's a lot of kind of mixed feelings. I don't know what your experience with this is, but that's something that I saw a lot in experience too, where you see these headlines and you see the the way that things from your field are being talked about that don't feel like fully accurate. And so I think there's like the way that you see that when you're a scientist and then also the way that you then see that when you're on the media side where yeah. you start to understand why some of those choices get made, which doesn't make it better, but like you you start to understand it a little bit more, especially things like headlines, which are so frustrating. And I I totally and I totally get why writers and um, you know, other people in the audience, why the public finds it so frustrating. And I also totally understand why the headlines get written a certain way. And so you're just kind of like, oh, yeah, now I see it from both sides and I still have my feelings about it. But like understanding a little bit more of why those things that feel dysfunctional are dysfunctional, like why those things exist has been really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. No, it totally goes both ways. I think I just didn't, when you're in the science, you don't recognize certain things and then you leave it and you see, oh, wow, this felt like a really, really important thing. And somehow, you know, there are things that sometimes blow up. um, And sometimes that stems from the media, but sometimes it stems from the scientists themselves, just kind of being a little bit detached from the Mm. reality of how important a finding might actually be. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, is there anything that, that you would say has changed in terms of how you see science now that you've been a psychomer? Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of related. Um, it's just that idea of being able to see the bigger picture that all of this like operates in. I think one of the things that I was worried about when I was making this switch is that I was going to really miss being engaged with like the nitty gritty of like daily lab life and getting to know so much so deeply about a topic. But I think one of the things that surprised me after making that switch is realizing that the that bigger picture perspective is really so much more fascinating to me, and it's made science it's made science a lot more compelling to me to get to learn. I think there's obviously so much value in that really deep technical knowledge that like people spend their whole lives in. But for me, being able to see science from this bigger picture perspective and getting to like dabble in other parts of it, like the science history side, seeing how it intersects with other parts of our life that are not necessarily things that you're going to observe in the lab. That's just been really, really satisfying. That's a really good point. It's it's true. I, and when I think about it, you know, since I left academia I have the number of topics that I've covered through podcasting, video work, and writing. 
it's just kind of wild how much my knowledge base has expanded um, mm-hmm. and, you know, moving out of sort of that that niche focus. And so, yes, I'm never going to be able to learn something as deeply as I learned it in my PhD. I'm never going to be the first person to discover a thing in all likelihood, because I can't imagine what that thing would be. Um, but I feel like I just have a much broader sort of higher level understanding of the science world um like mm-hmm. the, the natural world uh and so so yeah the, the big picture stuff for sure uh i i that totally resonates with me yeah yeah i guess this kind of my question for you um is semi related so i'm curious <laughs> what are your favorite science topics to cover so I think one of the things that, like, when you go into SciComm, like, into the SciComm world, like, a thing that people will tell you, especially if you're coming from the science side and that I have realized is true, is that it is probably easier or your writing will be better if it's on a topic that's not related to what you did your research on. Um, so that's definitely something I've come to appreciate. Um, but even still, uh, a lot of what I, one of the things that I work on as a freelancer is I'm a writer for this YouTube series called Journey to the Microcosmos. So Journey to the Microcosmos is a show about, essentially about microbes mostly. It's about things that you can see through the microscope. We have this incredible footage um, from our our master of microscopes, and uh, he he gets just like these really really cool like tiny little microbes that I just like did not imagine like existed, and it's been so cool diving into the world of microbes because my my background experience was in genetic engineering and working with T cells for cancer therapies, and so I had a lot of familiarity with mammalian cells from my grad school experience, and I shared lab space with people who were working with like yeast and bacteria, but I didn't really fully appreciate them, and now working on this channel like has been such a good crash course and like learning about microbes and like being like, right, these like these tiny little things that are all over the place have their own lives that have existed for billions of years before us. And so I think that's become one of my favorite things just to look into because our understanding of them is so wild too. Like there's things about them that we know so well and there's so much we don't understand at all. And yeah, so I would I think maybe like microbiology has just in general become one of my favorite things to understand because it's just like what's going on in there? Like yeah. what are these tiny like creatures doing? Yeah. And how do they do it? For sure. Are there any science topics that you're anxious to cover? <laughs> on the same note, and this is like terrible, um, and it'll show up like if you've if you've watched the show, you've seen it come up. Uh Optics is the weirdest thing. Like anything related to light in optics is like, it's one of those things I've realized that if you, you have to think about it for the exact right length of time. You have to think about it just long enough to understand it. But if you think about it for a second longer, it will stop making sense. Like you will just be like, actually, this doesn't make sense anymore. And so when you're working on a show about microscopes and you have to explain how microscopes works, there that inevitably becomes a challenge. And it's been fun to kind of work through that, but it's still like a thing that, you know, every time we're going to have to understand something new and figure out not just how the microscope thing that we're going to explain works, like I have to understand that. And also I have to figure out how to explain that to other people. 
I'm always just like, oh, oh no, okay, this will be good for me. Yeah. I know it's going to be good for me, but it's it's like you know, starting out on a long run where like you're like, I know this will be good for me, but right now, I am not looking forward to it. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a great metaphor. <laughs> do you have your own topics that you you love and also do not necessarily get excited for? Yeah, so I feel like the topic or that I'm most anxious to cover is uh kind of similar to yours so i would say it's more generally uh physics and i feel like yes. anything physics related that has to do with space like there was <laughs> when when was it that the the image of the black hole came out oh yeah that was like a few years ago i must have read something about like i must have read seven different things about that to try and conceptualize how they were able to get that image none of it stuck none of it i think there would be moments where kind of like what you were saying with um you know like there's a certain window of time that you can spend <laughs> on something before then all of a sudden none of it makes sense anymore yeah and for me i think that was like 15 minutes and then all of a sudden <laughs> it was like i had short-term memory loss and it was gone i i just yeah. i don't know what it is but I, it's just it's so hard for me to grasp those concepts and i think i've always been kind of like anxious about physics and math for I'm sure plenty of like society-based reasons but I think for me you know biological sciences just came so much more easily and they also interested me more for whatever reason mm -hmm. I mean it sounds ridiculous to say that space is not interesting to me of course it's interesting to me it's like this great unknown like it's 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 incredible and it's in, but I think because to me at least maybe because I don't understand the scientific basis for a lot of our knowledge, <laughs> it's really hard for me to wrap my brain around. And there's something about it that maybe I'm just like less interested because it feels fake. Like I, I know it's not, but yeah. I think it's just, it's harder for me. But but I guess then, yeah. So some of my favorite science topics to cover are definitely more like biomedical related. And my PhD was in biomedical science. So mm -hmm. like you mentioned, that's, it can be a problem, right? Because I'm so comfortable with, you know, the jargon, the like, you know, the the more uh, like esoteric yeah. terminology. Um, and I don't necessarily pick up on when I'm including things that are not public knowledge or that are not, you know, that are not going to resonate with someone who doesn't have beyond a high school level of education in terms of their like who doesn't have beyond a high school level biology understanding yeah so but I just I think I'm like really really fascinated by by disease I know maybe that makes me seem like a little bit weird but I'm like very very fascinated by the things that try to invade our bodies and the things and like how we fight them off or don't. I think I'm also really interested in death and decay and like that kind of stuff. I was definitely the kid that was like, I'm going to read this book on the hundred forensic studies that changed how we understand crime scenes or, you know, like how collecting certain bits of evidence from X, Y, and Z could help you draw conclusions about a, uh, an event. I have this kind of like morbid interest in things and I can't fully explain it. No, I think that's totally a real thing where sometimes like these things that are so scary, 
not always, but there are times where being able to break it down into like what is happening biologically makes it feel like, especially with something like as like something like it's concrete, but until like any of us have gone through it, it's abstract, but something like death where like, we're not going to know, like being able to like understand whatever we can understand biologically makes it feel like, I don't know tangible without having to be immediately there. Yeah. Um, and so it like makes it not necessarily always easier to process, but there are definitely times where like in the right mindset, stuff that's like scary like that. I'm like, oh, if I understand biologically what's happening, it makes it like a little bit, a little bit like more interesting and also a little bit less terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just I'm definitely someone who's like, give me the information. You know, when people talk about oh, well, would you want to know your genetic results for X, Y, and Z? I'm like, yeah, give me that info. I'm so I, I'm so that person who wants to know the things. Not knowing is way worse than knowing and just dealing with it, to me, at mm. least. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know can if I, tell, I... Can you tell I like control? <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm like the opposite because I love control too, but there are definitely so many things where I'm like, if I don't know how I'm going to use this information, I don't want to know. Mm. Um, so stuff like genetic testing where I'm like, especially because there's so much confusion and ambiguity around genetic results where and like we could have a whole conversation about that like about consumer genetic testing um but for me it's been one of those things where I'm like unless I know how I'm going to use the information I most of the time or at least I have to have like a good sense of like I don't need to know exactly what I'm going to do with it but I have to have good sense of how I'm going to process it yeah I unless I have that sense I'm like very like nope don't need to know. I <laughs> I'm gonna hold off. So which I think is like a different form of control. Yeah. I think there are people like who can use their curiosity productively in that way. And I just am not one of them. <laughs> uh you were talking about um the the books that like you read uh about death and stuff like growing up. And that like kind of segues into one of the questions that I wanted to ask, which is were there like either growing up or also like along the way, like were there specific science writers, TV shows, books, podcasts, anything like that, that specifically inspired you? Yeah. So actually very much in line with my discussion of death. um, (laughs) One of the first sort of popular science books I remember reading was Mary Roach's Stiff, which Hmm. is about death. And in it, she actually visits a body farm. Um, I won't go into like all of the details, but essentially these are, um, I mean, usually open areas, but they're, they're outdoors. Um, and they are, uh, research sites that are used to study what happens to people's bodies when they decay. You know, someone has died, they donate their body to a body farm, and then researchers put them in, you know, a variety of positions. <laughs> Sounds horrible, but like maybe they're in water, maybe they're out, you know, open to the elements, maybe they're in a car, maybe they're so they're, the, the idea is to kind of gauge um, what happens to a body as it decomposes and then use that information to try and understand, you know, let's say a crime scene or, or, if someone or if a body is found to try and determine what happened to them, how long they've been there, you know, all of that information. So it's not just like some bizarre, <laughs> bizarre, like mm-hmm. horror show. Like there is a real scientific reason for doing this. And uh, so I actually, that's the first time I had heard about that. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, 
just like a, a quick side note, we're definitely going to do an episode of Tiny Matters on Body Farms because <laughs> as you can tell, I'm very fascinated by them. And I think they're really, really actually like very important things that exist. Um, and they exist all over the world in different climates to try and understand how different climates would impact decay, all of that stuff. So um, anyway, so yeah, Mary Roach is a very well-known science writer, but I think one of her first books, I can't remember if Stiff was her first book or if Gulp. She has a bunch of them. Um, and she's had she had one just come out this past summer, um, but called Fuzz, actually. Um, but yeah, so that was kind of my, I don't know if it was like my foray into the like popular science writing world, but I loved that book. And then I would say the other person who comes to mind is Ed Yong, who yeah. won a Pulitzer Prize uh, in 2021. So yeah, just last year for his writing during the pandemic. Um, I just think that, you know, I started reading his writing when he was writing more about just, you know, weird animals um, <laughs> doing cool stuff. And uh, he still does some of that. And he actually has a book coming out, I think, this summer where he mm -hmm. is focused more on that, not focused on the pandemic, to my knowledge. Um, but his, you know, his writing style, just the way that he constructs sentences, the the words that he, the, his word choice, just like the structuring of stories that he uses is just, it's really, really impressive. Like he, he has a real way of taking something that's very technical um, and making it publicly accessible. And I think that that's, you know, that's something that I strive to do. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was, if I like think about this question, for sure, like, especially when I was in grad school, I remember getting to the point where I felt like I could identify an Ed Young article just by, like, the headline and the tweet or whatever. It was just, like, there's there's something about the phrasing where I know. Yeah. Like, the, the combination of the distinct. phrasing and the subject. Yeah. And I think one of the things that, especially for me, really struck me when I was, like, reading his writing, especially at that point, it's, he's not the first science writer to be like literary in any way. Like there are a lot of incredible nature and science writers who've been doing that for a long time. Um, but I think especially in the world of like popular science journalism at that time, I, I didn't, I hadn't seen much of that. And I really was so struck by how well he combines literary references with a lot of the science that he's describing because um, I felt like it just it it brought like some of that artistry and also made the the science feel accessible in a different way that wasn't just like I'm going to make a comparison it wasn't just like I'm going to make some kind of metaphor or simile it was combining it with other references in a way that was just to me really really interesting and I was like this is cool like I yeah. would want to learn how to do that yeah oh yeah I mean it's for me it's a it's a goal. <laughs> big, big goal. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there any other, you know, podcast, TV, other writer, anything that yeah. you feel like sort of like inspired you in your SciComm journey? <laughs> I feel like the big one is like the magic school bus. Like oh, whenever I think of just like, like science communication that shaped me, like that's the thing that I remember just like from when I grew up, but also like everything about it sticks with me now. Like that feeling of like how it makes you feel so immersed in a topic in like in such a fun way and somehow gets like accesses because it has like this, like now it's like, like as a kid, I don't think I was thinking about it in this way now, like from the, the side of the writer, when I think about it, I'm like dissecting all the things that it did so well. And you're like, oh, right. 
right. They have all of these different kids who embody different aspects of what it's like to learn the science. Like someone who's really scared, someone who's like really into the gross stuff, someone who's really curious. Like there's so many different aspects of it that they're able to cover. And then they make you feel so drawn into the story. They have the thing at the end. Like I remember watching a few episodes when I was older and being like really struck that they had the section at the end where they like pretend to answer to like listener comments about the episode and it's really for them to address the things that their episodes get wrong but it's Mm. but basically the things are like wrong because you know they're working within the constraints of whatever thing they're trying to write a story around so it was a really cool way of being able to kind of confront that head-on and just be like yep we got that wrong technically or we showed this to you wrong because we needed to and we but we still want you to know what would have been accurate or what would have been more true uh, or we think would have been more true and I thought yeah I was like that's so cool yeah, it's like that's a very fun version of a fact check. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. I need to go back and watch because I watched all the time as a kid, but I have not seen an episode since I was probably 10. So I, I need to go back and watch and pay attention to that stuff. That sounds yeah. really I need to watch really the cool. new ones. Oh, I didn't know there were new ones. Okay. Yeah, I think right. Netflix has the new ones. I'm not okay. sure though. I don't, cool. I don't remember everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. That's awesome. Um, so, all right, Deboki, I want you to finish this sentence. The first time I heard my voice in a podcast or on tape, meaning, you know, it could have been in a video, I felt. <laughs> I felt so awkward. So the first time I, I mean, this is not definitely not the first time, but the first time I like definitely like experienced it head on was when I made my first YouTube video and I had like never done anything like that. I didn't really fully have the equipment. So it was like an old laptop webcam, me talking into it. So kind of awkward, very stiff and just like very self-conscious. And then like that was me on the tape and then actually watching it after it was like reliving that. Um, But I do think like one of the things that was great about doing my own YouTube thing is like you get really inured to that so quickly. You're like, okay, whatever. That's my face. That's my voice. It's it's whatever. And like part of it is you get more comfortable being on camera. And part of it is you just like accept that that's what you look like on camera. And that's what you sound like. But I've definitely... I've noticed for some weird reason, it is much easier for me to see myself on video than to just hear my voice. Like when I've done podcast projects that are just like me recording myself and then having to edit my own audio, I am I feel so much more awkward than watching myself. Maybe because you're like, when you're watching yourself, there's something about being able to put I don't know, like what you're doing physically with what you're saying that makes it feel like more complete. Whereas when you're just like a disembodied voice, I don't know, it's somehow more awkward. Yeah. Yeah. I actually have to say that I I felt the same the first time I saw myself on camera, you know, in a YouTube video, I felt semi-awkward, but not super awkward. But yeah, the first time that I heard myself played back after recording a podcast episode, which would have been, I guess, now like about three years ago. I was, yeah, I I definitely had the moment of, does my voice actually sound like that? (laughs) Because I think (laughs) you have a perception of how you sound and how you look and all that stuff. And then you, like you said, you know, once you hear this disembodied voice, you're like, is that coming out of my mouth? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, 
But yeah, I think the big thing for me was, uh, you know, when you record a podcast or I think with, with video, this is also the case, whatever level of energy you feel like you're giving, you have to give at least 50% more to sound or look normal. It's this bizarre thing. So when I listen to really early podcast episodes, so not tiny matters, a different podcast way back. Um, when I listen to those early episodes, I sound like I'm half asleep and and I wasn't, (laughs) I was very much awake, but I need to kind of like, I, I didn't really understand the concept of, you know, like take a moment, like really, like, I think my, um, uh, former boss would say like smile as you're talking a lot of times, you know, you yeah. have to do these weird things with your body and sort of like your, your mouth <laughs> to just like get in the mode of delivering lines and, you know, not in a way that's inauthentic, but just keep in mind that however, however energetic you feel in that moment, it's going to come off a lot less energetic when someone's just listening to your voice. Like what you're saying kind of reminds me of when we were talking about the difference between how like we see media when you're on the science side versus when you're on the sciencom side, because I think the same thing happens when you're watching people or listening to them host where it's so easy to be like, huh, that's weird. Why are they doing that? And then like once, and even like, you know, I had filmed my own YouTube videos, but once I started like doing like hosting stuff that was like actually for you know, people like, um, so one of the things that I've done as a freelancer is hosting crash course organic chemistry on YouTube and doing like crash course hosting is very different from like sitting at home and just filming into my camera. Like for one, I, it's easy to just be kind of casual and whatever, but also I can talk super, super fast. If I'm at home, I can talk super off the cuff. And also it's just me with a camera. It's such a different experience having someone else in the room with you while for you're, sure. you know, reading off a teleprompter and you're trying to explain chemistry. Like you have to talk a little bit slower, but also you want to be still energetic. I thought I understood hosting just from doing myself, and then I learned how to do it in this other context, and I was like, oh, right, this is still so different. Like, this is so – it was a learning experience. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do maybe one more question for – each of us chooses one more question for each other. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so it's been a few years since you've been in the lab. Is there anything you miss about it? No. I love it. Yeah. Um, not at all. I mean, so I, I of course miss a lot of the people that I, you know, the the fellow uh, graduate students and the postdocs mm-hmm. who are in the lab with me. I definitely miss those people. But if I could just see them at a happy hour uh, every so often, that that would be fine. I yeah, I I don't miss anything about lab work. It's funny because I was asked that question a lot the first year after I finished my PhD, left academia and started, you know, as a science writer. Um, And never once did I feel that way. And I truly never think about it. I like, I really Mm -hmm. have not once since, since my PhD ended thought, did I make the right decision by going into psychom and not staying in academia? Even two years before graduating, I already was a hundred percent certain that I was over it. I was done. And not to say that I don't have so much respect for the people in academia and see, you know, the the immense value and necessity of academic research, basic science research, but I'm not that person. So yeah, the answer is hard stop. No. <laughs> what <laughs> yeah, about you? Yeah, yeah uh, definitely. I do not um, miss. Well, okay. So it's the same where I miss people and I miss like 
working on things with people in the way that I did in lab, but I don't miss lab. Um, And especially, I think one of the things I thought I was going to miss was just the feeling of, like, I was an engineer, and so, like, getting to work on a kind of engineering-type project, I thought I was going to miss that. And then I got into this, and I realized that it's kind of the same thing. Like, I do a lot of the same things that I did as, you know, working in the lab. It's just with a very different set of techniques. Like, I have to think about what my different parts are that I'm working with. I have to think about what my constraints are. I have to think about what, you know, whatever other consideration this there is. And writing a script uh, feels a lot like engineering to me. It feels a lot like with words, like figuring out what the right ordering is. Like, all of that stuff feels so satisfying in the way that working in a lab did um but in a medium that is actually what I want to do like I I also hit that point where I was like I I don't think I want to spend the rest of my life pipetting I also don't really want to spend the rest of my life supervising people who are pipetting so you know where does that leave me it leaves me in a completely different space that is you know not really in the lab world at all but gets to watch it yeah yeah I get to appreciate it I think I appreciate it far more, you know, not being in it. I think that I can sort of, you know, step outside of my personal feelings toward my own research and really appreciate all of the very cool stuff that scientists are doing around the world. Yeah. Yeah, I think the only times I miss it are when I realize that I have been sitting at my computer all day. So there's something about the movement that I miss. Mm. But it's like I can do other things. Like I can can go for a walk and that will hopefully scratch that itch. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so my last question for you is, why do you like explaining science to people? I think this is kind of selfish um, of me, <laughs> but I think it's just because I find talking fun. Like, I like talking at people, <laughs> and I like talking about things that I just find really exciting. Like, I will sit down, like, I, you know, I talk about books, I talk about reality TV, and I also talk about science. Like, those are most, like, it's like those three things and maybe my cat are, like, the things that I will talk about. Like, if you just give me the slightest prompting, I will <laughs> I will talk about any of those things for, like, an hour uninterrupted. And uh, science is, yeah, I just, you know, it's, it's wild. <laughs> like I, you know, that's yeah. not the most eloquent way to describe it, but there's just so many different things going on and so many different things to understand that I just very selfishly need a way to process that and release that into the world. And so this is one way to do that. And I think what I, I've also finding really interesting is, you know, on the less selfish note is like thinking about it in terms of the conversation, thinking about it in terms of what other people are bringing as an audience and thinking about what their concerns are, what their different levels of understanding are, what they might find interesting as well. And like what I need to do, like it's, it's been good to be kind of forced into position where I can't be as selfish and I have to actually think about how, what, what the audience is going to react to. And that's a really fun challenge as well. For me, the the big thing that I think first made me want to be a science communicator was that that moment when someone gets something. Um, and I think I liked that mm-hmm. when I was teaching as well, when a concept is just not really clicking, not really clicking, and then you find a way of explaining it or demonstrating something or, you know, yeah, finding some sort of metaphor, so like something that allows someone to 
come at the same subject from a different angle and all of a sudden they get it. I love Mm -hmm. that moment. And, you know, it's not like I'm seeing that reaction a lot of times, sometimes with, you know, family and friends when I explain something, yes. But I love, you know, if someone comments on a video or on, let's say, an episode of Tiny Matters or something like that saying, I never realized that this was important for X, Y, and Z or like, oh, I've always wondered about this and it never made sense. Thanks for helping it make sense. You know, those kinds of things. And again, this is also kind of selfish because it makes me feel good. Like I did a good job because someone is getting it and they haven't gotten it before. That feels really good. I think also I see that depending on your upbringing, where you grew up, just so many different factors, you are going to have more or less access to science and you're going to feel like science is more or less for you to understand. I think it's really important for people to feel like science is for them in the sense that they can understand and question it and not just say, oh, it is what it is. You know, science isn't what it is. It's this like, ever moving target, right? Like we're learning more and more, but the more that you learn, the more questions that seem to crop up. And that's normal. That's a good thing. That's why science is exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have a I don't have a good, eloquent follow-up. I think that's like a really great way of looking at it and like thinking about what the goal of science communication and science writing is overall. Yeah. So Duboki, do you feel like you know me better than better than you did? Uh, 45 minutes ago. Yes, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I can Uh, answer a quiz. I know things. I know that you really like dead bodies. Yeah, perfect. A plus. That's 100. (laughs) Um, So I guess all I want to close out with is thank you to everyone who is listening right now. Appreciate it. Um, Also, in terms of just kind of like, I guess thinking about what we were both just talking about, sort of why we like explaining science to people. You know, if you have feedback on the podcast, whether it's positive feedback or constructive feedback, please be constructive. Um, I'm not Mm -hmm. going to respond to really, really mean emails that have no constructive element to them. Uh, (laughs) So if, if there are things that you feel like, oh my gosh, this was such a great explanation and you, you know, you want to share that, that makes us feel great. If you also feel like, oh my gosh, in this podcast, in this episode, I feel like you left out X, Y, and Z. And and why did you leave it out? And did you know about this thing? And whatever. I also want to hear that. Absolutely. So um, please send us an email. So it's tinymatters at acs.org. And, uh, and, and that also goes for, you know, if you have like cool episode ideas or other things that you want to share, um, please shoot tinymatters at acs.org and email and uh, I'm the one who gets those emails. So um, <laughs> I I promise I will read it. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's see. And then, yeah, things that you can look forward to with Tiny Matters. I mean, we publish every other week, every other Wednesday. So um, there's always stuff kind of lined up, ready to come out. We have an, a cool episode coming out on... Um, memory, actually, um, I believe is the next one. So kind of mm-hmm. understanding what a memory is and how we store a memory and why we lose memories. So that'll be a cool one. And then just kind of like gearing up for the many months after that, there will definitely be an episode on um, biological warfare, uh, bioterrorism, uh, focus on um, in particular like anthrax, um, but also kind of the history of biological warfare. So 
that one should be, I think, very informative, interesting. There were a lot of things that I just did not know about um, before starting to kind of outline that episode. And then let's see, there's, I mean, there's a lot of things. I guess the last one I'll say, which I I already uh I already mentioned was we'll definitely do a body farms episode. Um and then I think <laughs> I was thinking the other day, um, there are a lot of really cool episodes that might be um or really cool ideas that that might uh, be relevant around Halloween time. Um, mm. mainly the um historical basis or the the rather the medical basis for um certain uh undead creatures uh, like vampires (laughs) so uh so that's like way in the future but these are just the things that are coming to mind right now um yeah i'm I'm, really scary and talk about physics oh my gosh i know if everyone (laughs) if anyone listening has um a physics episode in mind um Uh, no promises, but actually it would be a really <laughs> yeah. good challenge for Deboki and I to talk about it. And of course <laughs> yes. we always talk with experts. We always get fact checkers. So I, I think we'd probably be all right, but, um, I'm, I'm super interested. If you think that there is yeah. a physics slash chemistry related episode that people would be interested in, shoot me an email. Yeah, if you have any questions, let us know and we will see if we can figure it out. <laughs> Are there tiny things? I mean, physics is just all tiny things. So yeah. <laughs> yikes. Yeah. Yikes. It's like I signed on for that. Yeah. Well, Jaboki, do you have anything else that you would like to say or share? Uh, <laughs> share with the class. No, I think I, this, I, I really enjoyed getting to know you better, Sam. You as well. This was fun. This is a <laughs> yes. this was a, a fun hour. And I hope that the people listening had a little bit of fun too. 